Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, April 27th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present Christianity in the Old Testament, Part 6. And here, with that, we are going to present, critique, and hopefully elaborate upon Bertrand Compare's sermon, Israel in the New Testament. These programs are intended to both honor and elaborate on the works of Bertrand Compare and to offer any corrections which are necessary. Because all men are prone to making errors and no man can avoid that fate. We are doing this as part of our series on Christianity in the Old Testament because the two subjects are actually a single subject. Compare himself referred to this sermon in his original presentation of Christianity in the Old Testament. <coughs> so this sermon actually preceded that one. Regardless of the propaganda which is spewed by the denominational churches, both the Old and New Testaments represent racially based covenants made with the same group of people. One may pick and choose passages in the New Testament in order to attempt to dispute that, but those passages are being taken out of context when such interpretations can clearly be shown to conflict with many plain statements made in either testament which refute the validity of any universalist interpretation. To the sincere Christian, Judaism should have no standing or consideration whatsoever. The promise of a future new covenant was made explicitly in both Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The condemnation revoking the old covenant was spelled out explicitly in both Hosea and Zechariah. The Jews as a people have never fulfilled any of the many promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob concerning the children of Israel. The Old Testament is a Christian book, even according to Yahshua Christ and Paul of Tarsus. It is not a Jewish book at all. And it can be shown that history, in history, that the Celtic and Germanic peoples had their origins in ancient Israel and Mesopotamia, and they did indeed fulfill all of those promises. Of course, there were other nations which were part of the fulfillment to the seed of of, of the seed of Abraham becoming many nations. Today in the world the Celtic and Germanic peoples are the principal survivors. The Celtic and Germanic peoples also accepted the new covenant that was explicitly promised for Israel and Yahshua Christ the Messiah of Israel who came to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, as Paul of Tarsus attests. This is the basic premise of Bertrand Compare's sermon, 
It is a true premise, and now we shall commence to hear it from him. This edition, if I could call it that, of Israel in the New Testament by Bertrand Compare was taken from Your Heritage, the Your Heritage collection of sermons, and digitized with critical notes by Clifton Emmeheiser. I believe in 2005 or perhaps 2006. I, I might be mistaken. My memory of those years is sometimes cluttered. And Bertrand Compare starts by saying, It is impossible to truly understand the Bible, or any part of it, without understanding the Anglo-Saxon, Germanic, and Scandinavian people of today are the Israel of the Bible. The Bible speaks always and only to Israel. To claim its benefits for yourself, you must start by putting yourself in the ranks of Israel. Even the major churches show some dim awareness of this fact, although they won't admit it. And of course, one must be born. In reality, one must be born into the ranks of Israel in order to be included in the benefits promised in Scripture. And we would take this analogy one step further. It is impossible to understand history itself without understanding the Bible along with the fact that we are the children of Israel. Where did Europeans come from? Why did they accept Christianity? Why did they reject Jews for 1500 years? And now, why do Jews rule over them? Why are they being overrun by other races? And why must they ultimately reject those other races? The Bible answers all of these questions and more. The Bible also foretold that all of these events would happen along with many others. So before we can understand anything of our past, we must understand who we are or we will have no true and solid foundation and no certain guide for understanding our present or our future. Without an anchor, the boat just drifts haplessly in any direction that the wind blows. Continuing with Compare, and without a rudder, I should have said, for example, the Episcopal Church won't admit that we are Israel, but read their Book of Common Prayer, and Compare is challenging his listeners to read the book, which we cannot possibly present here. Throughout this book, it always speaks from the standpoint of Israel. To get out of the embarrassment of this inconsistency, most churches teach substantially this, and he's putting words in their mouth, in order to depict what they teach. And he says, Although God's promises to Israel were absolute and unconditional, God welshed on those promises and has given them to the church instead. However, they don't express this quite so frankly. If their doctrine were true, they wouldn't have much of a religion. 
If Israel couldn't trust Yahweh's word, who else could? But it is not true. Yahweh never welched on a promise. Every promise he ever made to Israel, he has fulfilled and is today fulfilling the promises to Israel and to no one else. And this position, which is called replacement theology, has been the Catholic position since the church was founded, and it is found in the writings of early Christians since the time of Justin Martyr and Clement of Alexandria. However, it can be proven from the epistles of the apostles, from Peter and Paul explicitly, that this position is not the original apostolic position, nor does it represent true Christianity. Clement of Alexandria twisted the words of Paul, while Justin Martyr was ignorant of him. Nearly all of the books of the prophets would also thoroughly refute this position on replacement theology. Continuing with Compare. Then, the churches say, we are only Gentiles, but we have become spiritual Israel. Now this is a most remarkable statement. The people of Israel were never at any time a group of people who all held the same religious belief. At the best, there were always many apostates and idolaters among them. During much of their history, nearly the entire nation became apostates. The great prophet Elijah found that in the whole nation of Israel, there remained only 7,000 men who were still loyal to Yahweh. But the Bible never says they ceased to be Israel when it was denouncing them for their apostasy. Israel always was a, pure racial, a purely a racial group, all of the same race, despite the apostasy of some of them from the true religion. Therefore, the only way anyone could become a spiritual Israelite would have to be the same process by which he would become a spiritual Negro or a spiritual Mongolian something that no one could ever do. You can be an Israelite only by birth, by inheritance. And for the same reason, when looking for the fate of the ancient children of Israel in the aftermath of the history of their deportations by both the Assyrians and the Babylonians, or in the earlier colonies which were made by Israelites in Europe and elsewhere, something to which the Bible also attests, one must not look for so-called Jews. One must not look for people practicing the religion of Yahweh. But one must look for pagans. All of the children of Israel who were taken captive or who had emigrated before the captivities were pagans. And in the resulting history, we find many tribes in Europe practicing that same sort of paganism which the Bible describes of Israel. Both the prophets and the epistles of Paul document 
the appropriate historical connections. Again, returning to Compare. In many previous lessons, I have presented the evidence that the Israelites exist today under the name of Anglo-Saxon, Scandinavian, and Germanic people, and that Yahweh's promises to Israel have actually been fulfilled to them. Many churches teach that the New Testament has done away with all of this. It threw all of Yahweh's promises and prophecies about Israel into the rubbish can and started a new religion which, with, with Israel left out of it. This is positively not true. The whole Bible is consistent from beginning to end. I have often told you that there is as much Christianity in the Old Testament as in the New, although it is harder to understand because it is presented in the forms of prophecy, rituals, and symbols. Now I want to show you that the New Testament, like the Old, is an Israel book. While Compare originally presented this sermon before his later Christianity in the Old Testament, which we have just presented here in four parts, he did indeed go on to demonstrate the veracity of what he has just asserted, that Christianity in the Old Testament is presented in the forms of prophecy, rituals, and symbols. Continuing with Compare, the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John deal with the life and ministry of Yahshua the Christ. Yahshua always taught the truths pertaining to Israel. In Mark chapter 12, a scribe asked Yahshua, which was the greatest commandment of all? We read, Yahshua answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God is one God. Yahshua regarded his whole ministry as being primarily to Israel. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, Yahshua said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. When Yahshua sent out his twelve disciples to teach the people, we read in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, These twelve, Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles. And Clifton Emma Heiser has a note there, sick heathen. And in that context, that's what Yahshua was referring to. That's what he was, that's how he was betting that his disciples would understand it. And into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And what Compare did not explain here is that these lost sheep are mentioned often in the Old Testament, especially in Ezekiel, in chapter 34, chapters 34 and 35, I believe, where it's explained that my sheep have wandered over every mountain. And it explains that the children of Israel are his sheep, and that wandering over every mountain, they were becoming lost. They were the Israelites of the Assyrian deportations. And for that, the shepherds were blamed.
because they let the sheep go astray. They led the sheep astray. So Ezekiel chapter 34 verse 11. For thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out, as a shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered. And that seeking started with the ministry of Christ and continued with the spread of the gospel to Europe. This last verse, which Compare quotes, Matthew chapter 10, Go ye not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any of the any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. This last verse is problematical, since it can be demonstrated that, at least initially, the apostles understood it in a different way than it was literally spoken. However, it remains true in any case that the intention of Christ was the intention of Christ for the gospel was only for the so-called lost sheep of the house or family of Israel. The apostles, and this can be proven from Acts chapter 10, the apostles interpreted that to mean only Judeans of the circumcision. It was not until later in Acts chapter 10 and in the revelations given to Paul of Tarsus that Peter is made to realize the identity of those sheep as he himself attests in his first epistle. The Apostle James shows the same realization in his single epistle, writing it to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. However, James wrote that epistle over 30 years after these instructions of Christ to his apostles. Continuing with Compare, in Matthew chapter 19 verses 27 and 28, Peter asked Joshua what reward would be given to those who had given up all to follow him. Joshua replied to Peter, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory, ye shall also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Note this carefully. He didn't say that they would be become heads of the Methodist, Episcopal, or Baptist churches, but that they would be become rulers and judges over the twelve tribes of Israel. Tribes, of course, being genetic in their substance. This is not something of the past, which Yahweh had to discard as a failure. This is Yahshua the Christ's prophecy of what was so eternally true that it would still be in effect in the millennium when he comes back to rule the earth in person. Also, many of the parables used by Yahshua concerned Israel, as Yahshua testified in the Gospels. And here Compare professed a belief in a millennium, which he had also professed in others of his sermons, which is a false church teaching, based mostly on a spurious 
interpolation found in Revelation chapter 20 in verse 5. There the clause translated as, But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished, is not found in the oldest manuscripts. In regard to Compare's mention of this millennium, Clifton M. Heiser made the following note, which he actually appended to the very end of this sermon. Compare again brings up the topic of a future millennium, saying, This is Yahshua the Christ's prophecy of what was so eternally true that it would still be in effect in the millennium when he comes back to rule the earth in person. Clifton says, while I have great respect for Compare and his teachings, and I rate him as one of the best Israel identity teachers, yet I cannot agree with his position on a future millennium. I believe that the millennium is already past, and I am not a preterist, and Clifton certainly isn't. Adam Clark, in his commentary, says this at 1 Corinthians 15.23 in volume 6 on page 158 under the phrase but every man in his own order. Some think that by them that are Christ's at his coming we are to understand Christ's coming to reign on earth a thousand years with his saints previously to the general judgment. But I must confess I find nothing in the sacred writings distinctly enough marked to support this opinion of the millennium or thousand years reign, nor can I conceive any important end that can be answered by this procedure. Let me say brief, briefly, because I do not have it in my notes, but I know that it's true. If you read the... Um, Gathering the Tares, for instance, which is another Compare sermon. You'll find that Compare believed that Christ was going to return to rule over all the nations, Israelite nations, beast nations, heathen nations, it didn't matter, to rule over all the nations with a rod of iron for 1,000 years. And that after that 1,000 years was over, that Gog and Magog would gather themselves against Christ and his people, and that that is when all of the beast nations and, and the heathen nations would be destroyed. All of the goat nations would be destroyed. And Compare believed in exterminationism in that sense, just as Clifton and I have always illustrated from Scripture. However, we believe Compare was wrong about this millennium. Clifton's notes are good, although at the time that he had made them, he did not have my notes on the translation of Revelation chapter 20, verse 5, which explain the interpolation that causes men to mistakenly believe that the millennium cannot happen until after the resurrection of the dead. From a historicist's view of the Revelation, as we see in my work titled Christreich, in, in my Revelation commentary, 
the thousand years is certainly over. There was not going to be a resurrection in the form, in, in the way that it is professed in the interpolation of Revelation chapter 20 verse 5. The thousand years are over and Satan is currently gathering all of the beast and, and goat nations against the camp of the saints. And that's been going on now for perhaps 50 to 100 years that's been going on. And, and well, maybe a little longer than that in, in the plans laid out in the protocols and the wars that have been fought against our race. I mean, Chinese were brought into Russia to help the Bolsheviks back in 1917. The Bolsheviks were recruiting beasts. The French, under the control of the Jewish money power, were bringing niggers into Germany in, in after the First World War, and maybe even during the First World War. So this has been going on for a good, at least a good hundred years, but the Jews and the, if I have to say, the Yankee Empire that's controlled by the Jews in, in New York and Boston were using Negroes against the whites in the South even 40 years before that, during the Reconstruction period. 40 or 50 years before that. So the beast and goat nations have been gathered against the camp of the saints for quite some time now. And what we see, I don't know if it's the end of the process, but it certainly seems to be coming to a culmination. So Compre was certainly wrong about his millennium. Because if we have to go through this again, wow. Addressing, okay, I'm not going to address that yet. I'm sorry, that's sort of out of place. I had shifted one of Clifton's notes and forgot to take it with me. Continuing with Compare, surely no other authority as great as that of Yahshua can be found to testify what is truly Christian. Yet there are still many people who mistakenly believe that the Apostle Paul changed all of this. They believe that he threw out not only all of the Old Testament, but also the teachings of Yahshua, and set up a new religion. Paul would be the last person in the world to attempt such a thing. Paul makes it clear in nearly every epistle he wrote, he is writing to and about Israel. Although some of this has been hidden by mistranslation in the King James Bible. And reading this and passages similar to this in the writings of Compare and even some of the other Christian identity writers, this is precisely why, shortly after I learned the Christian identity message in 1997, that I undertook my own study of Greek and began to make a New Testament translation. I never really <laughs> intended 
to translate the entire New Testament, although that is what I eventually did. I really only wanted to see for myself those supposed mistranslations in Paul and to learn what Paul had actually said. Starting in 1998, after perhaps 18 months, I was absolutely convinced that Compare was correct. In 2001, I believe, and it may have been a little sooner, I sent Clifton Emmeheiser a draft translation of all of Paul's epistles, and I thoroughly reviewed that and updated it for compliance with the best manuscripts and readings found in the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grecae in 2003. That is the text which appeared in Paul's epistles in the first edition of the Christogenian New Testament, but which has since been slightly amended and improved. Now we have recently completed a series of 100 and 11 podcast presentations containing a full commentary on the epistles of Paul and explaining all of the important variations in our translation compared with the King James Version and why we made them. Statements such as this one which we see by Compare were indeed our primary motivation for that entire endeavor. I'm not blowing my own horn, I'm simply trying to explain how I was originally inspired to take some of the directions that I took these last 20 years. Now in regard to Paul's statements about Israel, Compare says, let's review some of them. First, let's take the so-called Epistle to the Romans. To whom does Paul address it? Romans chapter 1 verse 7 shows that it is addressed to those persons in Rome who are called saints. Yes, I know that your King James Bible says called to be saints. But you will notice that the words to be are in italic type, which shows that these two words were not in the original writing. And yes, the King James Version often did that, but not always. They often did it. The translators added them in order to make it correspond with what the translators thought Paul should have said. But let's pay, take Paul at his own word, what he actually did write, instead of what somebody else substituted for it. And Compare is absolutely correct here. There are very many subtle little changes in the intent of the language from Greek to English that have totally corrupted the meanings of the original texts. And this is especially true in the letters of Paul, who was actually the apostle to the Israelite nations of the ancient dispersions of the twelve tribes. 
even in the King James Version, the Apostle Jude was translated rather correctly where he said, It was needful for me to write unto you, and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. The faith was delivered to people who were already saints. So Compare continues and he says, Remember that Paul was a very well-educated man who knew the scriptures well. Paul knew that a saint was not somebody who would be named such by the church in the dark ages, several centuries after Paul wrote, because the so-called saint had done some deed of piety. That's the way the Pope makes a saint, right? The Pope really can't make a saint at all. Do you know who all of the saints are? Paul knew because he knew the Psalms. In the first place, what does saint mean? It means set apart or consecrated to the service of Yahweh. That word saint is the same word as the word holy or hagios. And when it's applied to a person, it is very often translated as saint. It is used in the Bible almost exclusively of people as members of a class rather than as individuals. It is used to describe the status of Yahweh's people Israel. The saints are the people whom Yahweh had set apart from all others. And here's the kicker. Here's the proof. Whether they sin or not, this is demonstrated in Psalm 37, where it says, from verse 27, Depart from evil and do good, and dwell forevermore. For Yahweh loves judgment and forsakes not his saints. They are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. The wicked are not his saints, and only his saints are called to depart from evil. Therefore, they are saints even when they sin. Compare makes an example from another psalm. And he says, therefore, Psalm 148 verse 14 tells us who all of Yahweh's saints are. Not just some of them, but all of them. It says, he also exalts the horn of his people, the praise of all his, all his saints, even of the children of Israel, a people near unto him. Paul knew them, so when he addressed any of his epistles to saints, you know Paul was writing to Israelites. In the epistle to the Romans, as it is wrongly named in your Bible, for Paul didn't call it that, but the translators did, Paul says he is writing to all that be in Rome beloved of Yahweh beloved of Yahweh called saints since all of the saints are Israelites according to the Bible which Paul knew very well we know that he was not just writing to Romans in general Nero for example was a Roman in fact Nero was emperor at the time of at the time Paul wrote this epistle and we may be sure that Paul never considered Nero a saint. These saints are also identified as called. Paul knew whom Yahweh had called. And we have 
issue with Compare here. This is only partially true, as Compare is quite biased against Romans and Nero. The epistle is popularly called Romans, and the Romans themselves were descended from an ancient branch of the tribe of Judah. We must consider any true Roman to be a saint in that regard. Later on, Paul wrote an epistle that is popularly called, popularly called Hebrews. It was addressed generally to Hebrews. Likewise, the epistle to the Romans was addressed generally to Romans who were already ostensibly Christians because we see that in chapter 16 Paul addresses a lot of people that already belonged to Christian assemblies but they were nevertheless Romans Nero was a Roman since saints are the children of Israel and since the Romans, the actual tribe of Romans, not merely people of other races that were citizens of Rome, which you really didn't have a whole lot of in this early time, in the first century. There was much more of it by the third century. But since the Romans were primarily from the tribe of Judah, we must consider any true Roman to be a saint in that regard. Nero was a Roman, and he was ostensibly descended from the princely line of ancient Troy. Therefore, he was most certainly an Israelite, and a saint in spite of his sin. Many of the kings of Israel and Judah were greater sinners than Nero, and they would have supposedly known better having been raised in the law, while Nero was raised as a pagan. In some of his other sermons, such as Daniel's Fifth Kingdom, Compare admitted the Israelite origin of the Romans, so we cannot determine why he denied Nero that admission here, but Compare was evidently in conflict with himself on the matter. But in any event, Paul never made any specific comment concerning Nero's heritage. However, in Philippians chapter 4, Paul had passed greetings from saints in Nero's household onto the Christians of Philippi, where he said in verse 22, All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. Nero was Caesar when Paul wrote both of these epistles, Romans and Philippians. So here Compare is certainly not being fair to Nero, even if Nero was a horribly prolific sinner. Now, continuing with Compare, Isaiah chapter 41, verses 8 and 9 tell us, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham my friend, thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. And this, of course, is in reference to the called of Paul's, of Paul's epistles. 
Then he cites Isaiah chapter 51, verse 2, showing us from the Old Testament who the called are, as he also showed us who the saints are. Isaiah 51, verse 2 instructs us, Look unto Abraham your father and Sarah that bore you, for I have called him alone and blessed him and increased him. And of course that continues under the New Testament. Paul well knew that Yahweh had called and predestined his people Israel to be the people who are consecrated to his service, which is just what the word saint means. Therefore, in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, Paul says, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, he also justified. All Israel will be saved. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. He predestinated Israel. He called Israel. He justified Israel, whether you like it or not. And he glorified Israel even if we're not quite in that position yet. Capre may have done better to cite verse 29 along with verse 30 of that 8th chapter of Romans, where Paul wrote, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The Christian must be foreknown by Yahweh, predestinated by Yahweh, and it is only they who are called by Yahweh. Only the literal and physical children of Israel can claim the distinctions of being both foreknown and predestinated according to the prophets and the word of Yahweh throughout Scripture. The true Christian should not try to corrupt the word of God to make it conform to what he perceives of himself. Rather, the true Christian should seek to conform himself to the Word of God. And of course, only in Israel I can do that, because only Israel is called. Compare continues, Similarly, Paul writes to the saints in various other cities. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 1, Ephesians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and Philemon verse 5. All these clearly state Paul was writing to those who are the saints in those various cities. Paul knew that the saints, the Israelites, were the people to whom Yahweh's message was addressed the people in whom the message must take root, that they should be called to his service as Yahweh had declared from the beginning. Therefore it was to them that Paul wrote, and not to the Gentiles in general. And this is only a small beginning of the plethora of proofs of the Israelite identity of his intended readers which is found in practically all of Paul's surviving epistles. But Compare knows that, so he goes further on into Romans. <clears throat> Let's examine the epistle to the Romans still more closely. Romans is generally regarded as supremely the book written to the Gentiles. It might surprise you to know that there is no such word as Gentile in the Bible in its original language. 
Oh yes, I know that you could find it in the King James Bible, also in the less accurate of the modern English translations. It was never in the original languages, and has been put in by the translators. Neither Hebrew nor Greek has such a word as Gentile, nor any word which is equivalent to it. And that's important to understand. The Greeks have a close word, barbaros or barbarian, but that only refers to someone who is, who does not speak Greek. The word Gentile comes from the Latin word gentilis, which means one who is not a Roman citizen. If you were to use the word accurately, you would have to say that Yahshua and all of his disciples were Gentiles, for none of them were Roman citizens. Paul was the only one of the apostles who was a Gentile, for Paul was a Roman citizen. And actually, that should say Paul was the only apostle who was not a Gentile because he was a Roman citizen, according to the definition of Gentile, which Compare is supplying here. This error may have been in the, trans, in, in the original because other and older transcriptions of Compare's sermon also have it that way others which Clifton did not make. Furthermore, on Compré's definition, Compré's definition is not quite correct, and we shall explain that a little later, but now we shall continue with Compré. In other words, Gentile does not mean one who is not a Roman citizen. It doesn't. It never did. <coughs> it, does, it also doesn't mean one who is not a Jew. It never meant that either. That's a made-up church fantasy. Continuing with Compare. But what does the Bible say in the original languages in which it was written? And about this, Compare is right. In the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, whenever you see the word Gentile in your English Bible, the Hebrew used the word goy if it was in the singular, or the plural form of it, goyim, G-O-Y-I-M. This word precisely, this word means precisely nation and nothing else. Remember Yahweh told Abraham in Genesis chapter 16, 17 verse 6, I will make nations of thee. In the Hebrew, Yahweh said, I will make goyim of thee. It would have been utterly too silly to translate this as, I will make Gentiles of your descendants. The translators translated it correctly here as nations. You remember when the twins, Jacob and Esau, were still in the womb of Rebekah, their mother. They struggled together and she prayed to Yahweh to tell her why this was so. And Yahweh answered her, Two nations are in thy womb. In the Hebrew, the original says, Two goyim are in thy womb. Certainly, Yahweh never told her that two Gentiles are in thy womb. Here, the translators had to translate it correctly as nations. But this is exactly the same word which they translate Gentiles 
in many other places. The New Testament, which most of you have, was translated from manuscripts written in the Greek language. Whenever in your New Testament you see the word Gentile, the word in the Greek was ethnos. Ethnos means nation, just as the Hebrew word goy does. In many places it would have been silly to translate it Gentile, so the translators had to use the correct word nation. For example, in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, we read that a certain Roman officer, a centurion, had a servant who was dying. The centurion asked some elders of the Jews, and I must say the Judeans, to intercede for him with Yahshua and ask him to heal his servant. The Judeans did urge Yahshua to do this for the centurion, saying, that he was worthy for whom he should do this, for he loves our ethnos, and he has built us a synagogue. Surely no Judean would have praised the centurion for loving the Gentiles, or their Gentile, because it's singular. Nor would he have built a synagogue for Gentiles. So they had to translate this one correctly as nation and not Gentile. Everywhere you see the word Gentile in the New Testament, it is the same word ethnos in the Greek. This word ethnos has no pagan or non-Israel or even non-Greek connotation. The Greeks distinguished between Greeks and barbarians, which all educated men like Paul knew. Greek wasn't even a race. Greek was never considered a race by the Greeks. To be a Hellen was to be engaged in a common culture and language that was peculiar to the tribes that inhabited Greece. The Greek tribes were principally the Danans, the Dorians, the Ionians, the Boeotians, and perhaps half a dozen other tribes, major tribes, which are all subdivisions of the Danans, Dorians, and Ionians, principally. There were a few smaller, unrelated tribes in, Greek, in Greece, but they all considered themselves, themselves Hellenes because they shared a common religion, language, and culture, for the most part. That's why they were Greeks. Greek was not a race. They were all individual ethnoi or nations. The Greeks distinguished between Greeks and barbarians, which all educated men like Paul knew. So he said in Romans chapter 1 verse 14, I am debtor both to the Greeks people who spoke Greek, not people who were Greek by race, because there was no Greek race, and to the barbarians, people who didn't speak Greek. Everybody who didn't speak Greek or Latin for political reasons, the Greeks considered barbarians. So just remember that Paul never once wrote Gentile in all his writings. He only wrote ethnos, which means nation.
Therefore, do not be misled by the translation where you read in Romans 1.13, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. Paul actually wrote, even as among other nations. Paul had made converts who lived among other nations, both in Greece, Syria, and in Asia Minor. You must carefully judge from the general context in which the term occurs, whether the particular nation of which he speaks is an Israel nation or a non-Israel nation. If it is a non-Israel nation, then the common term Gentile may as well be used, even though inaccurately, because we are all accustomed to it. And in truth, the only nations that Paul had preached the gospel in, which were not Israel nations, were on his visit to to Athens, where he was speaking to Ionian Greeks in Acts chapter 17, and where he was in Lycaonia, where he spoke to pagans who were not Israelites. I believe that's in Acts chapter 14. And if you examine what Paul and Barnabas had said to the Lycaonians, or if you examine what Paul had said to the Athenians, you won't find anything about Jesus. No, you won't. That represents his gospel to non-Israelite Adamic people, because they were Jepetites, primarily. Now, there were some Israelites in those places, but the Lycaonians and the Athenians were Jepetites. So when Paul spoke at Athens on Mars Hill, he didn't say anything about Jesus. He didn't say anything about a covenant. He didn't say anything about redemption. He didn't say anything about sin. But he spoke to them in a manner that you would find applied to people who were Adamic in their race and not Israelites. He spoke to them about all the nations that Yahweh allowed to go their own way to see if they would seek him. And they didn't. They all went off into paganism. And he told them that there is a God who's the father of all the Adamic men and spoke to them purely on those terms. But there was nothing about redemption. So Compre is, he's close here, but I have to see things a little differently. Many years ago when Clifton published this, perhaps in 2005 or 2006, if I had to guess, because it might have been sooner, he first asked me to proofread it. And it was part of an entire collection of Compre's sermons, which he had transcribed. So when I did proofread it, I could not help but to make a few annotations here and there. In reference to Compre's explanation of the definition of Gentile, I wrote the following, and, and Clifton retained it. He added it to his own notes. He, he retained it for his publication. Critical note by William Fink. In addition to Compare's definition of the word Gentile, I would say this. 
I call Gentile a non-word because in our language it is just that. It is not an English word. Rather, Gentile was borrowed from the Latin language and assigned a corrupted meaning, non-Jew, which it never bore in Latin. The English translators chose the Latin gentilis, Gentile, for their corrupt translation of the Greek word ethnos, because Jerome, when he made the Latin Vulgate, used the word gentilis to translate ethnos into Latin. Now, Jerome wasn't necessarily wrong. It's the English translators who were wrong. You can, in the scope of the scripture, translate ethnos into gentilis. And I said that Jerome, however, may well have had more wisdom than the later English translators. Since gentilis is defined as family, hereditary, tribal, national, clansmen, kinsmen, by the New College Latin and English Dictionary, and describes a people with some degree of relationship to each other. The Junior Classic Latin Dictionary, published by Wilcox and Follett Company in 1945, defines gentilis of the same clan or race. Surely a word consistent with all scripture and nothing like the corrupted Catholic interpretation of the word. To be honest, ethnos must be translated into a like English term when translating the Greek scriptures into English, and no borrowed and corrupted third language term should be used, especially when that word's true sense is ignored completely. In other words, if the true sense of gentilis were used, we would know that the nations to whom Paul had brought his gospel were all Israel nations. It was actually Clifton who had initially found the definition in the New College Latin and English Dictionary, and Clifton still had that book on his bookshelf at home in Ohio when we had moved him and his books here to Florida. So I'm sure it's probably around the house on one of the shelves here somewhere. For me to have that definition for that note, Clifton must have presented it elsewhere in his own writings at an earlier time. So I cannot take credit for that part of my note. I just took advantage of something Clifton already found. In any event, I only hope that Clifton would use the material to help clarify what Compare had explained, and he did. Now continuing with Compare for a short paragraph. For further proof, Paul was not writing to Gentiles in the Epistle to the Romans. Note how Paul tells the saints in Rome to whom he writes in Romans chapter 4. Abraham is our father as pertaining to the flesh and Abraham, who is the father of us all. Certainly, he could not have told any Gentile that Abraham was his father as pertaining to the flesh. 
Actually, in the oldest Greek manuscripts, the first clause cited here says, Now what we now what may we say that Abraham, our forefather, has found concerning the flesh? A forefather is none other than an ancestor. You might be able to explain away the word father. Oh, it's spiritual, but you can't do that with the word forefather. And that's what the better Greek manuscripts have in that opening clause of Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 is Paul's most complete profession that by his time, the promise by Yahweh that Abraham's seed would become many nations was already fulfilled and that he was bringing the gospel to those very nations of the ancient promise. A study of ancient history demonstrates that Paul was certainly correct. In that same chapter, Paul defines the promise by explaining that those many nations came from Abraham's seed. Where the modern churches wrongly teach that many alien nations somehow became Abraham's seed, which is exactly the opposite of what the promise had said and exactly the opposite of what Paul had taught. Now Compare makes an exhibit in another chapter of Paul's epistles in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which may also seem rather startling to those who do not understand our Christian identity. He says this is consistent with what Paul wrote to the saints in the city of Corinth. Now the Corinthians aren't Romans, they are Dorian Greeks primarily, but Dorians were also from the ancient Israelites in a slightly different way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 1 through 4 he writes, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock which followed them and that rock was Christ. Compare goes on and says in response to that passage Paul could not have truthfully told Gentiles that their fathers, like his, had all passed through the Red Sea with Moses, and had all been protected by the pillar of cloud by day and of fire by night, and had all eaten the manna, and had all drunk of the water which poured out of the rock in answer to Moses' prayer. Only to Israelites could he have said this with the slightest spark of truth. Further on in that same chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul had said, where we will omit a short parenthetical remark, Behold, Israel, down through the flesh, are not those who are eating the sacrifices partners of the altar. Rather, that whatever the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to Yahweh. As we asserted at the beginning of this presentation, Paul was illustrating that the children of Israel, the nations who were Israel according to the flesh, were practicing paganism, just like the Old Testament informs us that they were. Only they were doing it after they departed from ancient Israel, in Europe, 
where they fulfilled the original promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to become many nations and a company of nations. So Compare continues, Not even the prophets of the Old Testament were more firmly convinced of the great and continuing destiny of Israel than was Paul. I know that you have been taught in your churches that Paul threw all this into the rubbish heap and started a new religion without Israel in it. Where they get that idea, I certainly don't know. Listen to this from the Epistle to the Romans and see if you could find anything here to show that Paul thought that Israel was all through, meaning all finished. In Romans chapter 9, verses 4 to 5, Paul speaks of the Israelites to whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came so he's talking about genetic Israelites and not spiritual church Israelites Compare says you have been taught that Gentiles are adopted as the children of Yahweh. However, did you notice that Paul says it is the Israelites to whom pertains the adoption? How could Paul make it any clearer than this? Which is in Romans chapter 11 verses 1 and 2. I say then, has Yahweh cast away his people? Yahweh forbid for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Yahweh has not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Compare response to that. Remember what he says about those whom Yahweh foreknew. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Since Yahweh's people Israel are those he foreknew, then this is written about them. And of course, in Amos chapter 3 verse 2, Yahweh says that, speaking to the children of Israel, you are the only people I have known in all the earth. So nobody else can claim to have been known by Yahweh, to have been recognized in this fashion by Yahweh, except the literal genetic children of Israel. The false interpretations of the denominational churches cause many contradictions with the actual reading of the scriptures. Once Christian identity is realized, all of the contradictions disappear, and all of the false teachings of the Jews are exposed. So Compare continues and says, We see that in the New Testament, the writings of Paul very clearly constitute Israel books, just as so just as much so as the old testament but what of the other books in the new testament which were not written by paul are they also israel books now let's look at the writings of the other apostles in the new testament
What about James? James addresses his epistle to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. This could not be to the Jews, for they were, they were not any of the tribes of Israel, and also they were not scattered abroad when James wrote. For ten years thereafter they were still collected together in Palestine. And there were Jews who had departed from Palestine and settled in diverse cities throughout the Roman Empire, but they were not they were not all twelve tribes. There were two apostles named James in Scripture. One, the son of Zebedee and brother of John, was slain by Herod Agrippa I, which is recorded in Acts chapter 12. The other, James the half-brother of Joshua Christ, lived until 61 or 62 AD, and he is the James who wrote this epistle. His death at the hands of certain of the party of the Sadducees was recorded by Flavius Josephus, in his Antiquities of the Judeans. Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, but the real diaspora of the Jews from Palestine did not occur until after a later revolt was crushed by the Romans, after 135 AD, the Bar Kokhba revolt. So Compare is correct that by no means could James had been referring to Jews when he wrote the words which open his epistle. Furthermore, Josephus attests in Antiquities, in Book 11, that only two tribes were ever under Roman rule, and they were the ones, they were the only ones who were ever called Judeans. Yet the records of the Old Testament inform us even further that Josephus could only have been writing of a very small portion of those two tribes. Josephus said, There are but two tribes in Asia and Europe subject to the Romans, while the ten tribes are beyond Euphrates until now, and are an immense multitude, and not to be estimated by numbers. A survey of ancient history can prove, beyond doubt, that those ten tribes were called by the names Sake, Scythians, and Galatahi, and then later by more specific names for smaller tribal divisions such as Goths, or Alans, or Alamanni, among others. Paul wrote to some of them in his epistle to the Galatians and told them that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. And God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. Galatians chapters 3 and 4. None of which can justly be interpreted as to apply to anyone but the literal genetic children of Israel. So Compare is once again correct where he says in relation to the opening lines of James's epistle that it could not even be the people of the kingdom of Judah for there were never more than they were never more 
Then the three tribes of Judah, Benjamin and Levi. I'm sorry, there was a typo here. James is speaking to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. We know that the Assyrians first took into captivity all the people of the ten northern tribes who made up the kingdom of Israel. Then the Assyrians, under King Sennacherib, invaded the southern kingdom of Judah and deported 200,150 of its people in the same captivity with the ten tribes. That was the 46 fenced cities. And the number Compare has of 2,150 actually comes from Assyrian inscriptions. He says, we know from historical sources, upon the fall of Babylon, the tribes of Israel, by that time known as Scythians, swooped down on Babylon and carried off most of the remaining people of Judah, Benjamin and Levi, who were captives at Babylon. They left behind just the relatively few who returned to Palestine with Ezra and Nehemiah. So when James wrote his epistle in 60 AD, or thereabouts, the twelve tribes were scattered abroad. By that time they were known as the Angli, Saxons, Ostrogoths, Visigoths, and the royal Scythes, already moving on their long march into their predestined homes in Europe. It was to them James was writing. And actually by the time of the return of Nehemiah, which was first, and Ezra, which was later, there were many who did remain in Babylon. Peter later brought the gospel to them. Peter said at the end of his first epistle that he was in Babylon. There's a tale that Babylon, in Peter's first epistle, was a code word for Rome, and that's a lie, because at that early time, Rome and Babylon was never a code word for Rome. The actual city, even though it was in a state of decay, it still stood, and that's where Peter was. Peter had brought the gospel to the people of Babylon because Peter was the apostle of the circumcision and there was still some circumcision in ancient Babylon. Later the Jews chose ancient Babylon as a base from which to write their Talmud or at least one of their Talmuds because there are a couple of editions of the Talmud. It is a Jerusalem Talmud and is a Babylonian Talmud, which is much more famous, of course. But even with that, even though there were still some Israelites at Babylon in Peter's time, they were still only from two tribes. They couldn't account for all twelve. There were also many Israelites who departed Egypt by sea rather than follow Moses among whom were a portion of the Danans, a portion of the tribe of Dan, and the Trojans. After the conquest of Palestine, many Israelites departed and invaded Greece and were known as Dorians. Around that same time, many others of the tribes of Israel took to the seas. 
and the Greeks later recalled them as Phoenicians. They settled Anatolia, parts of Greece, Italy, France, North Africa, Iberia, and the British Isles. They probably settled other areas as well. In fact, they settled the Danube River Basin. These early seafaring Israelites were just as significant in fulfilling the promises to the patriarchs as the Israelites of the later deportations were. The British Israel people give too much credit to the Israelites of the deportations and usually don't focus enough on those of the earlier dispersions, but that's fine. The Germanic tribes are the dominant tribes of Europe in modern history and certainly since the 5th or 6th centuries AD. Back to Compare. What about Peter? The first epistle of Peter leaves no doubt he was writing to the Israelites. The first verse is badly mistranslated. Instead of to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, as your King James Bible reads, the actual wording in the Greek is to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, etc. Pontus, Galatia, and Cappadocia are the eastern part of modern Turkey, and we know that the Scythian tribes of Israel did occupy this region before they moved out on their long journey into Europe. And Compare is correct in substance about the translation of the opening verses of Peter. They weren't strangers. They were sojourners, and the language insists that they were estranged. There's a big difference of in somebody who is a stranger to you and somebody who is estranged from you. And it is also true that Scythians once dwelt in Pontus, Galatia, and Cappadocia. But the Galatians returned and reoccupied the area four centuries later in the second century BC. So they moved on to Europe, but then a group of them came back to Anatolia. And that happened in, a, in, in the 2nd century BC, or perhaps I'm thinking about the very late 3rd century BC, in the time of Attalus I, who was the king of Pergamus. Furthermore, in Paul's time, there were just as many Greeks and Romans in, this, in these areas. They were colonized and ruled over first by the Macedonian Greeks and later by Rome. Asia was much more Greek than it was other Scythian. And its capital in Paul's time was Ephesus, Asia being the province that occupied the southwest portion of Anatolia. The capital of Asia was Ephesus. An examination of both Peter's of both of Peter's epistles reveals that he wrote them to assemblies which Paul of Tarsus had founded for the most part, and in them he upheld the teachings of Paul.
while it cannot be proven, he probably even wrote them after Paul's arrest and execution in Rome. So Compare continues, and he speaks further of Peter's epistles, and he says, The Israelites were exiles from their original homeland in Palestine, and were dispersed over a wide region. Finally, to clinch the matter, Peter identified them in the second verse as elect according to the foreknowledge of Yahweh, the Father. But who were Yahweh's elect? In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 4, Yahweh speaks of Israel, mine elect. As to the foreknowledge of Yahweh, remember that in Romans chapter 11, verse 2, Paul confirms that Yahweh has not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Elect is but another word for chosen. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, the people of Israel are told, Yahweh your God has chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. When people complain about white supremacy, it is really, it really should be called God supremacy. Let's look further into what Peter has to say. In 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9, he says to these exiles of the dispersion, of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, etc. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Compare responds to that passage and he says, I know that the King James Bible is a chosen generation says a chosen generation but this is a mistranslation and it certainly is for the word in the Greek is genos meaning a race not a generation this couldn't describe anyone but Israel as the chosen race is Israel among many other places we find it in Isaiah chapter 44 verse 1 yet now hear O Jacob my servant and Israel whom I have chosen Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6 continues, Yahweh thy God has chosen thee to be a special people unto himself against all the people that are upon the face of the earth. Or, as Peter said, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This also can only be Israel. For Exodus chapter 19 verse 6 tells the people of Israel, Ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A peculiar people is another identifying mark of Israel. For Deuteronomy chapter 14 verse 2 says, For thou art a holy people unto Yahweh thy God, and Yahweh has chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. Finally, that you should show forth the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light is another identifying mark of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 21, Yahweh says, This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. And actually that darkness is a reference to the blindness of Israel. And Yahweh asks in Isaiah, Who is blind but my servant, whom I have chosen, 
speaking of Jacob, speaking of the children of Israel. Compare says, I have skipped over the epistle to the Hebrews, which is not signed. It actually belongs to Paul, and there should be no dispute. But it is usually credited to Paul, he says. I can't imagine anyone disputing that this book, as indicated by its, by its title, is written to, as well as written about, the Hebrews, the Israelites. And actually, Compre used reverse logic on the epistle to the Romans, but I won't elaborate on that. He says, probably we need not say more about it here. If I were to start in on that book alone, it alone would take several lessons to cover. I will go into that some other time. And of course, we have already made our own lengthy commentary on Hebrews, which spanned at least 25 hours. Hebrews was with all certainty written to the Israelites of Judea, and Paul wrote it as his apology, or a defense, of his teaching of the gospel. Much of Hebrews clearly answers the differences which Paul had with the Judaizing Christians of Judea that are evident in Acts chapters 14, 15, and 21, and also in Galatians chapter 2. So Hebrews represents Paul's answer to all of his critics and all of those who disputed with him during the course of his ministry who were in Judea and ostensibly in Antioch of Syria and other places. And it's um, startling that you leave the epistles to the Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews, and you fast forward a hundred years to the time of Justin Martyr. And Justin Martyr, who was a um, Christian writer from Samaria, had never quoted Paul. The Christians of Judea had totally rejected Paul. Justin Martyr was totally oblivious, so it seems, to Paul's epistles. He never quoted them. And it's no wonder that Justin Martyr very, very clearly taught replacement theology because he was under the influence of those Judean Christians that hated Paul. So they never learned from Peter or from James. They never learned the identity of Israel with the European people. And Justin Martyr just went on to say that now the church is Israel. And he said that very clearly in much of his writing, and several times in his writing. And I've already even quoted some of that in a different context in recent months. Perhaps in my, um, in either part one of this series or in the Two Seed Line Revisited program, one or the other. Anyway, that's just a little digression. Compare continues. What of the 
little understood book of Revelation. It is too clear for any possible doubt that this book is written in symbols and is not to be taken literally. You must understand the symbols used in order to know the great realities for which they stand. These symbols are in general Israel symbols. Hence it can be understood only by those who can recognize the basis of the the Israel basis of the symbols. This is also a book about which whole volumes have been written. It is too long for me to take up as just a subdivision of our present theme of Israel in the New Testament. And in this regard, I would think that the most important thing to know about the book of Revelation is that in the end there is a city and on the gates of the city are written the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. A tree grows in the city, the tree of life, which bears twelve, tri- twelve types of fruit, ostensibly corresponding to those same twelve tribes. So it may be safely inferred that if one is not a member of one of those tribes, one will never be permitted to enter into that city Outside of the city are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. But hold it, all men sin, even all Israelites. So who are these others who are left outside? That question is only answered once it is realized that Christ came to cleanse only the children of Israel for their sins. As Compre had already quoted from Romans, those whom he foreknew, these he also justifies. The children of Israel are justified, so they are permitted inside the city. Nobody else is forgiven of any of their sins and they can forever remain outside the city. Compare moves toward his conclusion. We have covered enough to show that the New Testament and the Old Testament are just the two sides of the same coin which has the same value, whichever side you look at. If this were not so, we could not have confidence in either one of them. The truth must always be consistent with itself. Yahshua came not to take back Yahweh's promises and nullify the prophecies, but rather, as Paul said in Romans chapter 15 verse 8, and I quoted this passage at the very beginning of this evening in my introduction, Now, I say that Yahshua was a minister of the circumcision, meaning that he was circumcised, everything according to the law, for the truth of Yahweh to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. All that had been promised to Abraham and Moses was to be made good, and that's also professed in the opening chapter 
of the Gospel of Luke. Likewise, these promises to Abraham and Moses included the basis for Christianity. In fact, Moses was a Christian. Does that startle you when you remember that Moses died more than 1400 years before Christ was born? Yet, the New Testament tells us that Moses was a Christian. Hebrews chapter 11 verses 24 through 26 says, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of Yahweh than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater treasures. I'm sorry, greater riches than the treasure of Egypt. For he had a respect under the recompense of the reward. It is certain that he could not have esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, unless he truly understood what all the rituals he had taught the people really meant that they talked of the coming Redeemer. So it is that Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 speaks of the law having a shadow of the good things to come. The book of Hebrews explains how the rituals were only symbols of the coming of Christ and his sacrifice for us. And of course, about that part about the symbols... Compare is absolutely correct. There's one other um, there's one other problem here and one other issue which Clifton had and which he added into his notes and that was in regard to Compare's interpretation here. And we would rather think that the rock in the desert to which Paul referred, which he called a spiritual rock, was really a reference to Yahweh God himself, who is Yahshua Christ. And Clifton really didn't understand that, but or, or understand that in that manner, and that's fine. Clifton thought it was Jacob's pillar instead. But where Compare says reproach of Christ, it wasn't Yahshua Christ being reproached in the desert. It was the children of Israel who are the anointed collectively. And Clifton had pointed out a few other passages where Compare failed to understand that the word Christos can refer collectively to the anointed and not merely to Yahshua Christ and that in context in those passages it absolutely had to refer to anointed so Clifton said Compre also quotes 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 1 and 4 in addition to Hebrews chapter 11 verses 24 and 26 where I believe where Clifton believes that Christ is a mistranslation and of course the Christogenian New Testament also reflects that 
At 1 Corinthians chapter 10, one and four, one, verses 1 through 4, I believe that Christ should instead be the anointed, meaning the children of Israel. And the Christ at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26, should be the anointed. And Clifton says, meaning Jacob's anointed pillow stone. With that, I don't agree. That should also refer collectively to the children of Israel. Now, Clifton believes that Jacob's anointed pillow stone is the rock in the desert. And I would say that it certainly can stand as a symbol for Yahweh in the promises which Yahweh had made to Jacob as he slept upon that stone. So, it's a slight difference, but it wasn't Christ being reproached in the desert in the Exodus in Egypt. It was the children of it, the children of Israel collectively, the anointed collectively, who were being reproached. Compare is correct, as we have discussed earlier in this series, that Moses was indeed a Christian. In spite of his misreading of that passage in Hebrews chapter 11. So he concludes in his final paragraph of this sermon. And he says, therefore, never let anyone tell you that the two halves of the Bible are inconsistent. And to accept one, you must reject the other. No, the Bible is all one book. It tells of Yahweh's putting his sons and daughters on earth as his chosen people. Israel and the great destiny he set for them. It tells of his foreknowledge of their imperfections and sins and his provision from before the foundation of the world of the Redeemer who would save his people. Both Old and New Testaments are Christian books and both of them are Israel books. And as we pointed out in previous segments of this series, even Paul of Tarsus taught that the Old Testament was a Christian book because you couldn't understand it until you were a Christian. The veil remained upon the Old Testament until you accepted Christ and understood the Gospel. There are many other passages which come to mind, some of them which are mistranslated in the popular Bible versions which help to prove that the New Testament is indeed for the same children of Israel for whom was written the Old Testament. Closing this series, we will, we will provide our translation of just a few of them. The words of Simeon in Luke chapter 2, from verse 29. Now release your servant, Master, in peace according to your word, because my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in front of all the people, a light for the revelation of the nations and honor of your people Israel. The light of Christ was to reveal the identity of the nations of Israel, the nations of the promises to the patriarchs, and it did when the people of Europe turned to Christ. <clears throat> The words of Christ to Ananias in Acts chapter 9 concerning Paul of Tarsus. 
But the prince said, Go to him. I'm sorry, but the prince said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel by me, who is to bear my name before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. The construction of the Greek grammar informs us that the nations, the kings, and the sons of Israel are all one and the same, and that is exactly what Paul himself had later explained in Romans chapter 4 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, both of which Compare had mentioned here. The words of Paul where he explains what Christ had spoken to him in reference to his ministry from Acts chapter 22, verse 21. And he said to me, Go, because I shall send you off to distant nations. Those distant nations must be those nations and kings of the sons of Israel in Acts chapter 9. And finally, the words of Paul to Herod Agrippa 2, which are a reference to that same command from Acts chapter 26. And now, from verse 6, and now for the hope of the promise having been made by God to our fathers, I stand being judged for which our twelve tribes, serving in earnest night and day, hope to attain our twelve tribes. Concerning which hope, I am charged by the Judeans. Nothing could be more clear that the distant nations to which Paul was sent were the same twelve tribes which bore the hope of the promises, and none of these were Jews. As Compare also said, we could continue on with such expositions for many hours. Here we will conclude by saying that the denominational churches are following the teachings of the Jews and they are forced to deny 90% of the Bible. But Christian identity accepts the entire scriptures as being true. We are the true Catholics, and studies the language and the history, which proves that they are true. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.